The following program is brought to you by the 511 Media Group. This program is available on iTunes, Spotify, the 511 Media Group YouTube channel, and 511mediagroup.com. Welcome back, all you spook ghouls and witches. Kind of missed my intro there, but uh, it's it's been a long day. It's been a long couple weeks. It's been a long year. Uh, <laughs> so today we decided to talk about something that maybe not a lot of people would think would be a popular topic, but uh, we are going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe today. Uh, I would classify him as one of the top horror kings. I mean, Stephen King is obviously the holder of that title, yeah, based he, on all the work he, he has. He talks more about like creepy... Stuff. Stephen King has the imagination that literally no one can touch. Yeah. <laughs> and Edgar Allan Poe wrote about things in his life that made it more realistic and scary. Yeah. Um, but I, I studied him in school, and I'm sure a lot of people have at least read one poem or short story by him. I know I have multiple times. Uh, he was up there with Robert Frost and all those other poets but he was a very big horror writer, and a lot of people thought he was just kind of weird. But, I mean, he was pretty normal in, all, in terms of everything. Uh, <laughs> but he's, he's got a pretty cool life, and there's, like, conspiracy theories about how he died. Yeah. So I mean, he, uh, cool. he was one of the most important and influential American writers of the 19th century and was actually the first author to try and make writing his moneymaker. You took my first line. I, <laughs> <laughs> I said, my first line is literally first author to try to make a living as a professional writer. Do we use the same website? <laughs> I don't know, because my website went really in-depth, and I it was very long. Yeah. It was a very long uh, website. Um, but like I said, a lot of his work was inspired by the, the things around him and his life. Um, and his poem, The Raven, was what made him the most famous upon publication in 1845. And he had a lot of work done before this, but he worked really hard to get where he was. And he still, in his lifetime, he wasn't very rich, but he survived. He got by. Yeah. It was, it was a hard time to live in in general around that time, but he... He had he had it rough. He wanted to yeah. be rich and sell his stories and like give the world art, but it just didn't work out in the time frame. I mean, working for a newspaper company and being a publisher, like it just it didn't pay well back then. It still doesn't really pay well uh, to be an author. It's a it's a very big jump to take. Yeah, I mean, he grew up and in, in poverty most of, or lived in poverty most of his life, and when he was in college, I want to say at University of Virginia, he ended up burning his furniture to stay warm through the winter. Yeah. Yeah, I have that written down because um, it's a very long story. I can get into it, but <laughs> his life was not the easiest. And uh, he he suffered some real some real stuff that, you know, surprised he kept going as, as much as he did. He suffered a lot more than most people do. Uh, he lived through a lot of death and just a lot of tragedy and... He still, he still is kicking it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, <laughs> if they're around that, they would just crumble. But I feel like he took that as an opportunity to make something beautiful out of it. I, I mean, yeah, yeah he, yeah, he used it in his art. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> pretty morbid and mysterious. But he was a very author. interesting man, to say the least. He was not crazy. He wasn't. The friendliest man either but he was just kind of like an average dude who just wanted to write that was just what he wanted to do ever since he was young um so i guess i'll just go down my timeline i have here and feel free to jump in with whatever if you have the same website yeah. <laughs> uh so he was considered the master of macabre I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> uh, he transformed horror stories with psychological depth and insight not envisioned before his time and was hardly seen since. So he's created works of art that most people still can't succeed in. Uh, he he twisted a lot of stuff. I mean, I think si like Stephen King, for example, does a very good job of being very psychologically horrifying as well as realistic. Um his creatures are a little out there, but they're still so psychologically disturbing that it just gets to you. Like Pennywise, right? He's oh. a clown. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I already have a fear of clowns in general, <laughs> but Pennywise as a whole, just like 
that makes it worse. Like, but uh, then he has like that really weird side to him that makes you think, and you're like, is that stuff real? Yeah. <laughs> like, his stuff is so unbelievable, but believable at the same time. So I think that you know Stephen King can kind of get close to that, but I don't think that a lot of people can write like Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, his work is definitely unique. Yeah, he, uh, he actually was seen often as morbid and mysterious since he was found lurking in the shadows of moonlight in cemeteries and crumbling <laughs> castles. So uh, just He's enjoying. just a dude that liked to ghost hunt. That's what yeah. people do now and it's normalized. Yeah. <laughs> but back then it was like, oh, there's a man in a, in a ruin who would want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, okay, what's this guy up to? Is he grave robbing? Is he creeping? Like, yeah. Or am I going to die? Yeah. <laughs> Is he like plotting my death? Yeah. <laughs> Is he possessed? Is he okay? <laughs> um, he was an early pioneer in science fiction. Uh, he was fascinated by science, and he often wrote stories about new inventions that were made when he was alive. I guess that's cool. I, you know, there's I don't really keep up with that stuff. I don't know what kind of inventions were made back in the day. Um, he was credited with inventing the modern detective story with the murders in Rue Morgue, the concept of deductive reasoning, which he called ratiocination inspired countless authors uh the most famously was inspired by this was sir arthur conan doyle who is the author of sherlock holmes so i guess we owe it all to him honestly i mean sherlock's a great show (laughs) sherlock holmes we read that in school and it was awesome he's he's a cool dude benedict cumberditch does justice (laughs) uh he was born on january 19th 1809 to a couple of traveling actors and they died within the first three years of his life and was taken in by a wealthy tobacco merchant named John Allen, which is how he got the name Edgar Allen. He uh, was reared to be a businessman and a gentleman, but he said, no, I want to be a poet just like Lord Byron, who was the famous poet of his early childhood. Um, He attended the University of Virginia, like he said. He excelled in his classes, but he accumulated major debt and he was sent less than a third of his funds needed, despite being a adopted child to a successful, wealthy family. <laughs> so uh, he had to burn his furniture to stay warm, and he left school because he was so humiliated by his poverty. He went home and found out his fiance was engaged to another man. <laughs> what a sucky couple years. Yeah, I feel like he definitely has gone through it. He went home for the warm touch of his lover, and he found out that she was engaged to someone else. That's horrible. Poor guy. (laughs) He published his first book at 18. It was called... I can't read that. To Marianne? He was enlisted in the U.S. Army and entered academy at West Point and was thrown out after 18 months. He found his former relative in Baltimore, who became a mother to Poe, Maria Clem. I believe he was her his aunt. And she had a daughter named Virginia, and he she became the object of his desire and needs. He became attracted to her, which is really gross. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's his cousin, <laughs> which is where we go back to the olden days. We don't really talk about that and how we're all probably related somehow. Yeah. <laughs> John Allen died and left him out of his will, so he got no money from that man's death. Poe lived in poverty and was publishing short stories. He won a contest, and the connections that he got through that contest allowed him to get a position as an editor at the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond. Uh, He made it the most popular magazine within one year. That's very impressive. Yeah, I believe it's because of he was a very he was very vocal about writing, so he was very opinionated and he was not afraid to like bash someone if he if he needed to he was very he was a very intelligent man and very very particular I would say when it came to writing so he married Virginia who was 14 at the time and he was 27 and they were happy Uh, that is an age gap first of all it is an age gap and it's also very illegal nowadays yeah (laughs) i mean it still happens in like third world countries they marry off very young but i mean like 
I'm not good at math, but I'm trying to figure out the age gap and, okay, no. That <laughs> That's is a an whole nother child right that there. That is most of her life. That age gap is most of her life. Yes. <laughs> so they wound up moving to New York and then Pittsburgh to make more money. They were barely able to make a living despite his growing fame. Like I said, he very, he, this man struggled. <laughs> he was yeah. on the struggle bus his whole life. I feel like it's really common for like great authors and artists to be in poverty yes. until they die. Especially the earlier years, yeah. like in the 1800s and before that. It was just not a good lifestyle to live and a lot of people didn't want to. So in the winter of 1847, Virginia died of tuberculosis at 24. She only had 10 years with Poe, unfortunately. So Barely into her adulthood. <laughs> Barely into her adulthood. Uh, and Poe died two years later, as it found out. We're, we'll get to that. <laughs> After the, her death, he moved back to Richmond in 1849 and reconnected with his ex fiance the one that was married, engaged to another man, Elmira Royster Shelton, and they were to be engaged. He went to Pittsburgh before the wedding and stopped in Baltimore and disappeared for five days before his death. He spent his last days alone in Washington College Hospital, and the cause of his death is still a mystery today. Rufus Griswold was his literary rival. He wrote a libelous obituary in an attempt at revenge on Poe for some of the offensive things he wrote about him. This is petty. Yeah. <laughs> the pettiest thing you could ever do is write a man's obituary in the newspapers in revenge. I don't even think that's allowed nowadays. No, that's <laughs> just disrespectful. But Poe did get the reputation of a fearless critic who not only attacked the author's work, but the literary establishment. So he would just go for the throat. But get this. So he followed it with a memoir about his life in which he portrayed Poe as a drunken womanizing madman with no morals or friends. And this is what caused his work to skyrocket in sales. People bought all of his stuff and they created the legend of Poe that lives today based on what he wrote. So in the term of him wanting to get revenge on Poe, he in turn made him one of the most popular and wealthy authors to exist. <laughs> like, how bad did that backfire and how bad did that feel? I mean, that's what you get. <laughs> that is like the worst kind of um, like reciprocation I've ever seen. I mean, karma, karma's a bitch. <laughs> So Joseph W. Walker found Poe semi-conscious and unable to move, lying in a gutter outside a polling place, and he never regained enough consciousness to explain what happened to him, unfortunately, and his final days were spent in delirium and visual hallucinations. The official death, they said, was from phrenitis, which is the swelling of the brain, on October 7th, and uh, poor guy. (laughs) He died in 1851. Uh, so there's a bunch of theories about why he died. Some of them are very good. Some of them not so much. So the th- first theory is that he was beaten. Uh, they say that he was robbed and beaten by ruffians or was beaten because a woman considered herself injured by him and her brothers went to go beat him up. Kind of a sick thing to yeah. do. Uh, theory number two, cooping. This is one I've marked as pretty reliable. So cooping is a voter fraud practiced by gangs in the 19... 19- century where an unsuspecting victim would be kidnapped and disguised to vote for a candidate multiple times so they would just make them vote for the person they wanted to win regardless of if they should have actually won or not which is illegal nowadays we have the voting things in place to make sure that people don't do this um and it was extremely common in baltimore and where he was found uh was a known place where victims were brought after this happened so before prohibition voters were given alcohol after so that was like their reward. Now we get stickers. Kind of a weird turn, but <laughs> I, I like the stickers. <laughs> <laughs> I like the stickers too, but I would have much preferred like a nice little like a shot of whiskey or something afterwards. <laughs> like, good job, you did your country proud. Um and this could explain his state uh, if he was forced to vote many times, he could have gotten alcohol poisoning, he was delirious. Could have explained it and why he didn't remember it. <laughs> uh theory number three is alcohol. He was a member of the temperance movement, which uh, was like a sober lifestyle. And so he got rid of alcohol, which he'd struggled with previously in his life. Uh, He was once ill and he made a recovery in which he was told another attack would be fatal if he had one. So he had to stop drinking. And those around him were convinced he fell into temptation, which explains his five day disappearance because he fell down a hole and started drinking. Uh, samples of hair upon death disprove this theory, though, as low levels of lead were found in his hair. 
So that leads to theory number four, which is also not really a good one. Uh, it was carbon monoxide poisoning. So Albert Denae in 1999 theorized that he got it from coal gas used for indoor lightning in the 19th century. Uh, his hair tested for certain heavy metals and came back inconclusive, discrediting the theory because if it was that, they would find it in his hair heavily. Mm-hmm. Theory five is heavy metal poisoning. Again, uh, elevated levels of mercury were found in him. Uh, likely due to cholera pandemic in 1984, this would explain his state, but levels found in his hair were 30 times below the levels consistent with mercury poisoning, so it's also not possible. This next one, kind of convincing. Uh, Dr. R. Michael Benitez participated in a clinical pathological conference where doctors are given patient cases to diagnose, so they basically get a, a case file no name, they're told to diagnose what they probably have based on symptoms and what was written in the medical reports. So he got Poe unknowingly, and he had diagnosed rabies as it was a common thing during that time. But without DNA evidence and no signs of hydrophobia or animal bites, uh, he drank water just fine in the hospital, so he wasn't afraid of water. <laughs> uh, it seemed unlikely uh, Jeff Jerome was a cultural Poe House museum, agreed, saying it was the first time someone looked at this case without preconceived notions, so he thinks it's a pretty plausible idea um, that a doctor today was like, yeah, that's probably rabies. So they think that one's pretty plausible, especially the okay. guy that owns the museum dedicated to him thinks it's a very plausible theory. Yeah. Theory number seven is brain tumor. This one is also very plausible. So uh, Poe was buried unceremoniously in an unmarked grave in Baltimore. They built a statue in front of the graveyard to honor him, and 26 later, 20, 26 later, 26 years later, his coffin was dug up and his remains were exhumed to move to a new place of honor, and while they were digging up his corpse, it fell apart in the transition, and a worker noticed a mass rolling around inside the skull. Newspapers complained it was his brain shriveled up, but it was still intact which is not possible because <laughs> it's one of the first things to yeah. decay. Uh, his brain is the first to decay after death, but tumors can calcify into hard masses after death, which I didn't know. <laughs> uh, a New York physician once told Poe he had a lesion on his brain that caused adverse reactions to alcohol, which could explain why he had that illness at one point in time. Theory number eight is the flu. Days leading up to departure, he visited a physician for an illness. He had a weak pulse and fever. His wife and doctor told him not to travel as he was too sick. Uh, it was coldy and rainy and coldy. <laughs> it was cold and rainy in Baltimore. Uh, and it was possible that he exasperated flu and may have led to pneumonia, which I guess could make sense. Yeah. But I don't know about how people are. I don't know if they're delirious when they have pneumonia or not. Um, I know. That was pretty common back in the 19th century. Then again, things have really progressed differently since this time, so it's very hard to say. Yeah. And theory nine is murder. John Evangelist Walsh theorized that he was murdered by his fiance's three brothers. He made it to Philadelphia, and they threatened, and dis- so he disguised himself for a week before going back to Richmond. And they intercepted him in Baltimore, where they beat him and fed him whiskey, knowing it would send him into a deadly illness, making it kind of the perfect crime. I don't know about this one, but I, I think it's very plausible. Yeah. I think it could be possible. It's a very wild theory. I could see it, but I don't see the motive yeah. behind it. I think it would just upset the sister, knowing that if it ever came out that they killed her fiancé. Yeah. That it would just be the worst thing, and she would never forgive them. I mean, I wouldn't, personally. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that one of the other, you know, natural reasons... Is more plausible. Yeah. I think the three that I thought were very plausible. Um, so the rabies and the brain tumor um, and the cooping. The cooping seems most likely to me because if they didn't know who he was, um, then it could have just been a stranger that they picked up on the street and made them vote yeah. <laughs> multiple times. But those are the, the theories around his death. They don't know what happened. They still don't know what happened. Uh, the poor man died alone and confused. He lived a really bad life. Yeah. <laughs> he, did, he did not live a very good life. He was very successful, and he was very famous, but he just was not getting it <laughs> in life. Life just kept kicking him down every every part of the way. But that's all I have on his life. Yeah, he 
definitely lived a very rough life, and I guess karma, re- like, gave back because they felt bad. And we're like, okay, we're going to make you famous now. <laughs> you might be dead, but you're famous. You have a couple years in the running, and then got to kick yeah. it. Um, but we do have a couple stories to talk about today. The first story I'm going to talk about is my personal favorite, the Telltale Heart of 1843. So this story, um, the narrator had nothing against this old man. So it's based around this old man that they might be taking care of, but they live in that house. Um, the man would look at this old man that he was taking care of. I guess they don't say if it's a man, the narrator is, but I'm just going to go with that. It's possibly a man. Um, the old man in this house had a creepy eye that was blue and pale and remind him of a vulture. And it actually drove the narrator to insanity and gave him the decision to take his life and, in the story, it says over and over that he's not a madman as if he's trying to convince himself, not the readers. And he believed even after the killing, killing the man, he could hear the heart beating while the body lay dead underneath the floor while cops were inside the house. And it caused him to have an outbreak and scream that the body was underneath the floor to the officers and that anything was more tolerable than this der- derision. Derision? I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, I guess I'll go next then. Um, so my favorite, I learned about it in school, which is why I liked it so much. There's this one, and then there's one um, about like a monster that lives in a pillow and is basically sucking the energy out of the mom every night, and then these people die mysteriously. And they're basically these monsters. That, it's called the feather pillow. Okay. And they lived in the pillows, and they at night they would suck out their juices i guess they're like energy (laughs) sustenance yeah so i i studied this and my honor is english uh so mine is the oval portrait it's a very famous one it was originally published in 18 of (laughs) april of 1842 uh the original title was life and death and it's one of his shortest stories this and the telltale heart are also that i read that on our guest's outline. <laughs> uh, so basically, it's about this man who moves into a chateau, and it has many paintings that are already in there, and he notices an oval portrait of a young girl who is not quite a woman, and it's in his bedroom, and he notices it at night. And it's and he's entranced by how lifelike she is, but then he quickly gets appalled by it, and he turns to a book of art and reads the story of the portrait. So basically, this artist paints a portrait of his perfect wife who was jealous of his art, um, because it was taking all of his time away from her and he becomes obsessed with captivating her likeness and he doesn't see her slowly getting weaker from losing his love and him not paying attention to her and once he finishes uh he looks over and finds her dead (laughs) so he finishes his beautiful porn portrait and she's dead That actually reminds me of a video game I played called Layers of Fear. It's based off this. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's based off this I, story. It reminded me of Pope, and I was like, I don't have any, like, plausible reasoning why I think No, that, yeah. I, I saw I that game. I was something. And I, <laughs> I saw it when I was looking up some stuff about this. So they say that this is kind of the link between art and life. It warns about the danger of neglecting reality to pursue greater art. Um. It's also about how the power of art has an influence on its confu- on its consumers. Uh, the there was also a gothic theme of metaphorical disembodiment or dismemberment uh, because it was only painted a certain part up from her. Uh, the painter they say that the painter was a vampire uh, because he drains the energy of his wife for the art, and the wife is immortalized through the art with the price of her life. So they say he's like a vampire. Uh, It also talks about the impermanence of life and the intransience of art, how we don't live forever, but we can live on forever through art. So even if we're not physically here, we're remembered a different way. Uh, It talks about immortal beauty, and it's just, it's a great one. It's really short. It's like two pages long. I just love it. Yeah. (laughs) And the pictures depicting it are really cool, too. Compared to his other stories, that is short. (laughs) No, it is really short. And even in the book I read it, it was in a little bit of a small font, but it was really short. 
Um, do you want to read your next one? Yeah. Uh, the next story I have is called Ulame, which was written or published in 1847. And in this story, the narrator focuses on his walk on a October night, just observing the beauty around him. And he follows a star that appears to him. But he doesn't trust it immediately, but decides to go along with the ride and see where he ends up. And he ends up going to the grave of his lost love, Ulame. And he realizes on that same day he buried there, buried her in that place a year ago that day. Um, the themes of this poem are death, grief, and a ra- rational and irrational fear of human natures. So he goes through just overanalyzing everything and being scared of death, I feel like, since he knew he lost his love to death and he was just dealing with grief and was scared of death himself. That's a really good segue into my next one. Uh, So the next one, I also read this one at some point. I don't know when I read it, but it's also a really short poem. Uh, It's called Annabelle Lee, and this is written about his dead wife. So I'm sure that this is also around that period just of grief of losing someone he really loved. It was written in 1849 and published after his death, which kind of sucks because <laughs> he never got to see it take off. Um, it's told by Annabelle's lover. Uh, it tells about uh, how he forcefully rallies against people and supernatural forces that try to get in between their love. And their love is so strong that even after her death, they remain together in like a psychological way, I guess. Um, It shows themes of both love and grief, as it was written about his deceased wife, Virginia. And, (laughs) of course, after his death, one admirer of his said that it was written about her. And people are like, you're crazy. (laughs) But it's a really beautiful story. It's just about, like, super powerful love. Um, That's all I can really say about it. It talks about how, you know, the seed tries to take her from him and... It's just, it's a really sad story, but it's really beautiful at the same time because he really loved Virginia, even though it was his cousin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still thrown off at the cousin part, but. Yeah, like his blood love, cousin, like love. not the adopted <laughs> parent's cousin. Yeah. But love is love, <laughs> as they say. I, I don't support incest, let's say that, but for the sake of the story, it is a beautiful story about love. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a very nice poem, and I... When I was in school, I liked to read a lot of the um, Cliff Notes explanations because it just made it a lot easier. A lot of the older (laughs) English is a lot harder to read, and poetry is very hard to read if you're not accustomed to it. And I just, it was not this this nice. (laughs) I think Robert Frost was like the easiest for me to read, and he was still kind of complicated. But to talk more about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, my dad's here. He got really excited when we talked about Edgar Allan Poe and said that he wanted to talk about him. He was the one that actually introduced me to him before I read him in school. He bought this huge, um, I don't know what kind of edition it is, but he bought this huge book of his collected stories and poems and I actually bought another one but it's like one of the new reimagined ones like this is this is a really old version he found at a thrift store I think we were in like Wisconsin when he found it or something at some random bookstore 845 pages plus of Edgar Allan Poe's works it's it's his complete it literally smells like an old book it's it's 850 (laughs) pages it's you know it's gold bound it's leather bound it's I mean, what are you, it's, it's three inches thick, maybe? Yeah. Um, if you go on the 511 Media Group Instagram page, um, you'll see a picture of it. Um, I have a picture of you guys with uh, the book in front of you so you guys can see what, what we're talking I about. I figured that's why you set it up. We <laughs> notice when you take pictures and we try not to look at you. Yeah, we're like, like ooh. <laughs> but three of my favorites are um, Black Cat. Oh, I love that story. That's also really famous, yeah. and that's so what my Nancy Drew game was based off of, which is why I love it. That was hard not to, to kind of go through that story. Um, the Cask of Amontillado, it's probably probably my favorite more than the Telltale Heart, but I figured the Telltale Heart really embodies Poe, and you guys were talking about um, the different subplots or, or themes in each of his stories. Personally, after reading so many stories by him, I think what he basically did is he it's 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 – an autobiography of his life. I think Every anytime he had a he had a bad experience, he just told it through. Everything his in his life, all of his anxieties, his fears, his paranoias, his love, right? So his love life, he tr- he transferred all of that into his writing. So that's why it was 
so descriptive because I think he was living it or the demons inside of him, if you will, were coming out through his through his works. Yeah. And so that's how a lot of art's made though. A lot of people like uh, Leonardo da Vinci and all of those really famous artists all struggled with something and, they and they're all short stories. So they're not incredibly long. They're 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 fairly short. I mean the black cat is very short. Cask of Amontillado, sort of short. Um Telltale Heart. Very he does short. have some yeah. very one long ones, but right. he but one typically wrote short stories. Um, stories, of, and I, you covered a little bit. The st- the stories about a man who's an. Or, or, I, I should back that up. The stories about the narrator, um, who has serious paranoia issues. He stalks an old man. The old man lives in a small, dark, shutter-closed room. He stalks the man, terrorizes him, and in the end, kills the old man. Um, he kills the old man because he was, or this, the narrator was obsessed with the milky white eye, which was the um, eye of the vulture story. And it, while it's short, um, it finds success through the intensity of the story. So it builds up this, this culmination to the end, um, which the narrator tells the tale. The man claims, or the, the narrator claims, his intelligence is at humanity's highest level. That he's not a stalker, he's not mentally ill. He's not unstable, and he's not a madman. But at every turn, he tries to rationalize his behavior. And then it, in the story, it only seems more irrational, more sadistic, more madman-like. Now, if you followed the podcast of these ladies, you'll know that they've touched on a lot of different serial killers so far, uh, two in particular, Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeff, Jeffrey Dahmer and, and Ted Bundy. This is kind of a culmination. This story embodies both of those, I think, stalking and dismemberment of a body. Yeah. You guys talked about Dahmer chopping up his, his, his victims. This is a, those are modern day Edgar Allan Poe. Honestly, tell, though, tell. if this guy was alive today, he'd probably plead that like demons made him do it or something and yeah. plead insanity. But I mean, if you 100%. put those two together, you get the telltale heart. Yeah. So um, the story basically goes that he... Um, every night at 12 o'clock, he checks in on this guy, slowly opens the door. Sometimes it takes him an, up to an hour to open the door. He goes in with a very small lantern. He only opens it enough to get a small ray of light so that he can see the eye. And when he sees the eye, he goes into a rage. So right? he's really just obsessed with his eye. He's just, it was, it was it's not even the, the man. It's just the eye. That is correct. Yeah, the eye pushed mm. him to insanity, it seems like, in that he tried to rationalize like what he was doing. Like, oh, no, I'm not crazy. I'm not a madman. <coughs> like, like, he was fooling himself. Like a werewolf with the uh, full moon. So yeah. there's, there's a website called the Poe Decoder. And there, I'm just going to read it straight from their website. The belief in the evil eye dates back to the ancient times. Even today is fairly common in India and the countries bordering the Mediterranean Sea. References are made to it in the Jewish, Islamic, Buddhist, and Hindu faith. The belief centers around the idea that those who possess the evil eye have the power to harm people and their possessions by merely looking at them, which goes We're both holding yeah, one up. We both, <laughs> we both so have an evil which, eye on. Which, which goes to the, the eye of the vulture, and it made him enraged. Um, wherever this belief exists, it is common to assign the evil eye as the cause of the unexplainable illness and misfortunes of any kind. So um, he goes into this guy's room for seven nights in a row, does this same ritual. And on the and, and at one point, he says in the story that he fairly chuckled at the idea. Now that's a highly dis- that's a characteristic of a highly disturbed person. okay? So as I read that and as I was going through the notes and preparing, it made me look up on the website mentalhelp.net. And it, to me, it seemed like a person who has a paranoid personality disorder. And their definition of that is someone who exhibits suspicious thinking and therefore having, uh, has difficulty in trusting other people. This may interpret what other people say or do as an intentional, as an intentional attempt to t- attack them, hurt them, or take advantage of them, all in this story. In turn, they end up holding grudges or may act in ways that are overtly defensive, hostile, or even aggressive, again in this story. You can imagine this thought pattern will cause a lot of anxiety for the person who is paranoid. It is in this story. And this type of guardedness, defensiveness, or hostility is very unpleasant for the people around him, especially the old man in this case. So on the eighth day, um, he goes into the room just like he has the previous seven nights, 
except this time his hand slips on the clasp of the lantern. And the old man immediately springs up and he cries out, who's there? Now, he's in a dark room, small dark room. There's not a lot of space. This guy's probably crawling around Mm -hmm. with a lantern. And the shutters are all closed. So the only light in the whole place is this lantern. Slips, opens it. And when he opened his his lantern, um, it fell on the vulture's eye. So that he called it the hideous veiled eye. And he became furious in a rage. Now, most serial killers, um, their victims do something that's not their fault. But whatever they're manifesting is their trigger point. The victim does that and it puts them into a rage. And then they ultimately do something harmful to their victim. Yeah. It's nothing that the victim did personally to them. It's just a characteristic of whatever they, they had, whatever a- attracted them most to the victim, they do it. And then it's almost like they feel guilty at a point uh, that they're exhibiting this behavior and they get embarrassed and they don't want to be embarrassed in front of the victim or anybody else. And so they lash out at the victim. W- yeah. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, I would say so. It's kind of like how Ted Bundy would go for attractive, educated young women with brown hair in a middle part. He's and then that's the very thing that causes their death because yeah. it, it gets him so riled up that yeah. he, has to, he has to end their life in order to continue his own. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the person. It's just something about them just sets them off, and he's like, okay, that's it for you. I can't deal with it. I need to move on with my life, so yours has to end. The thing that's interesting about this whole story is it builds up this crescendo of all of these different things happening. And then at the end, he's so calm. Yeah. So there came, there suddenly came a point where, and this is quote unquote, a low, dull, quick sound happens in his ears. And it was the beating of the old man's heart. But is it, is, is it his heart? Is it, is it his own heart? Is it the, is it the man, old man's heart? And so, it keeps beating louder and louder and louder and louder. And he's afraid that the neighbors are going to hear it. And so what happens again, we were just, we were just talking about what happens when they're embarrassed or they're fearful. That's, and a lot of times these people in their own head are experiencing whatever's going on. Nobody else really has a clue as to what's going on, but in their own head, they think, Oh my gosh, I have to end this. I have to, I have to do something to get rid of the evidence, whatever it is. And, um, remember, he's always talking about how he's smarter and he takes all these precautions and he's not a madman, but all of his actions are saying otherwise. And so he kills the old man. And then he doesn't just kill him. He takes him into it. And so it later talks about a tub. Um, he takes him into a tub because he says afterwards there was not a spot of, any, a spot of blood anywhere. A tub had caught it, caught it all. Ha ha. So he laughs. So it's he takes delight in it, which then even goes further into his maniacal behavior. Um, so he cuts him up, and he and he gets rid of him in the floorboards of his home, or of, of the apart of the of the room, so to speak. And of course, there was a shriek. The shriek that they heard was the man saying, "Who is it? Who's there?" The police come. It's four a.m. Police ring the doorbell. They're there to investigate the shrieks. Um, he admits to the police, quote-unquote, with a light heart, which is kind of foreshadowing into the whole point of the story. Um, so he, he talks about there was nothing wrong. He actually takes his chair. He sits the chair. He puts places the chair right over where the dismemberment, uh, the dismembered body is, and he just has a conversation, idle chatter with the police officers, and they get very comfortable, and, and it appears like they hear, see, nothing wrong and they're going to leave and then he starts hearing this noise and it's a heart and it's a heart beating louder and louder and louder and the policemen aren't hearing it they're still having a conversation he's hearing it louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and then the narrator and this is in quotes becomes foamed and raved like a madman and they were making, and he's saying they, which means either the voices in his head or the policemen, which they're not, but he thinks they are, making a mockery of his horror. And anything was better than this agony. And all of a sudden, he says, 
I admit it. I did the deed, tear out the planks. Here it is. Here's the hideous uh, beating of his heart. And it was all on his head. So some people think it was his own heart. Some people think it was the old man's heart. I'm, I tend to think it's his own self-conscious. Like his guilty conscious. His guilty yeah. conscious saying, you did this, and he couldn't handle it anymore. Now, one of the interesting parts, going back to the Podicoder, was, and I'm going to read this verbatim. He said, most readers assume that the narrator is a male because of the male author using a first-person point of view. However, the story can also be plausible when the deranged protagonist appears as a woman. Interesting. Flips it on his head. Most critics would argue this point by saying that Poe would assume that the reader would know that the protagonist was male. Therefore, he would see no need to identify his sexless narrator. However, Poe was a perfectionist who left very little guesswork. Could it be that this was no accident or something that he thought would be universally understood? But Poe was creating a story whose impact could be changed simply by imagining this horrendous and vile deed being committed by a woman. I thought that was a very interesting point. I never thought about until... I read this, I never thought about that individual being a woman at all. Yeah. But it's a very different story if you read it from the viewpoint of a woman. I also feel like a lot of people don't think women are more likely to be serial killers or have That's like my theory about Jack the Ripper. I mean, I'll get yeah. into that when we cover him eventually, but I don't think that a lot of people, especially back then in his time, didn't think that women were capable of it because yeah, they, they're so docile and yeah. nurturing and... They just weren't mothers. capable. That's what they're not smart enough yeah. to be like that. They're more emotional than men. Men are, which would make sense about the guilty conscience thing, right? Yeah. Everything is is they see it, they have to get rid of it. Whereas women are emotional. It's been built up. It's more probably premeditated than men are. Probably more reactionary. Something yeah. happened. They snapped. They did it. Whereas women think about it and and grind on it for a long time, and then whatever crime they commit is the manifestation of that grinding on it for so long yeah. it's not always the case i mean a lot of serial killers tend to build up and stalk and find their victim perfect like their perfect victim before they kill them because they fit that that killing type but well i think this story goes and in, in, into detail be, and it's a short story but it talks about the difference between good and evil the light and the darkness well Talk i wanted to themes. i wanted to bring up like the evil eye because the evil eye like in the way that it's explained uh, when you're talking about it, it kind of makes it seem like the evil eye is not a good thing, but the evil eye, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Summer, but it deters evil energies and negative forces. Yeah, it's a symbol of protection, so the wearer of the evil eye is protected, whereas if you don't wear it, you are able to you're feel vulnerable the energy. To the energy yeah, yeah, you're more vulnerable to the energy because they say no matter what you do, you send energy at people. If you give someone a dirty look, you're sending them negative energy. So if you wear the evil eye, you're protected from even the smallest negative energy sent your way. Yeah, so I think that the evil eye, maybe like the evil eye being the man's eye, if it's represented as the evil eye, it might have noticed that the, the energy was negative and that the person had maybe a negative spirit and then it could have driven that person's real you know, the real personality out of the person, and then they claim that it drove them crazy. So here's a different perspective on that. So the normal eye and then the milky eye. The milky eye is all of things that are wrong with society, all the bad in the world, and it's being covered up by this milky whiteness. Like everything that goes on in our in our heads and our brain and in everyday life is covered up by this this milky whiteness, and it's infuriating the narrator to the point where he sees all of that going on in the world through this individual's eye. That's another possible way to look at it. Maybe the dark side of, of things, the dark side of or the world. Or maybe that man is lucky enough to not see with that one eye, like, the reality of things. Like, he only has Could to experience well. the bad things of the world through half of, half of his vision. So, so he's not taking as much of it in, you know what I'm saying? So the one thing, the one characteristic that this gentleman does possess that's different from the narrator is the eye, and it's ultimately what drives the narrator crazy and kills him. So, so. yeah, I just because uh, we watched a movie about um, it's called Evil Eye by Blumhouse, and it's a part of their first uh, movie collections, and it's a fairly good movie. And that's when I started to really like the concept of the evil eye because I think it has a really negative um, connotation. Yeah, I mean, like when I first saw it, I was like, "What the heck is that thing? Like, that's kind of yeah. creepy." <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people have it tattooed on them too. 
So yeah. when you see it at first and you know nothing about it, it's kind of a creepy looking thing to have on your body. It looks almost kind of demonic, but it's really the opposite. Yeah, especially since it's called the evil eye. So mm-hmm. you would assume that the eye is evil, but it does the opposite. Yeah, it's really protecting you from the evil. So it's actually a really interesting concept. And if Sai was here, she'd be able to explain it a little more because it's an Indian. It comes from Indian culture. Sure. Um, but it's a really fascinating We got into Poe because we were talking about Stephen King. So if mm-hmm. you remember, we were we were mapping out some of the shows and, and talking about it from a production standpoint. And we were talking about Stephen King. And maybe we should do a three, four, five, six-part series, seven-part series on Stephen King. Take one or two we're working on it. Of, his, <laughs> uh, of his stories, but doing in a multi-part, you know, multi-part series and then releasing them. Um and then we started talking about doing Edgar Allan Poe, maybe the same way. So we make it back to, you know, future future shows. You can talk about the Black Cat, and you can talk about the Cask of Amontillado, and you can talk about some of the other stories that are so, um, so much in, in what Poe's short stories embody is all of those themes of death and paranoia and anxiety and fear. Um, so that's why that's kind of how. It was, he's one of my favorite writers. Yeah. So when we started talking about that, I'm like, hey, let's, you know, if, if we've got some time, I want to talk about Telltale Heart because it's one of those stories where I think we all have a little bit of anxiety, some of us more than others in the room. You don't have to point at her. I do too. <laughs> but you could see her. But the anxiety sometimes leads nervous. us to do things that we would not normally do. And I think you'll see that theme throughout Edgar Allan Poe's writings is it's a lot of anxiety based. And I, you know, I know you guys are talking about him, but if, if he was still alive and you did a study on him, my guess is he would have high anxiety. And one of his releases was writing about it, and that's probably how he coped with with his anxiety. Well, I can tell you right now that there's probably very few artists that are normal and like psychologically normal. Um, there's it, it's a it's a way of coping. It's a way of expressing yourself. Um, and it's an escape for a lot of people. Creating these fantasy worlds and pieces allows you to escape from reality for a bit. So it's a it's a big release for a lot of people. Um, yeah. But I think another thing with Poe is that he left, like, he doesn't really write with gender pronouns um, unless he's talking about somebody else. But usually the narrator or the person that you're reading from their perspective doesn't typically have a gender. And I think that allowed a lot of people to interpret his work really differently. And it allowed for multiple interpretations instead of just one, which is why, you know, if it was maybe a woman who killed this man, it can talk about different things and it kind of spins the stories and it tells it differently. So yeah. I think that it was very open yeah, to a lot I of mean, interpretation. Especially if you're a visual person like when you read the stories you have a picture painted in your head perfect movie yeah (laughs) and then like you flip the story and it's like oh it's a woman not a man then the whole story looks completely different in your head like yeah you're typically when i heard like oh it could be a woman i thought like oh i pictured like a small frail woman because that's what i pictured like a bellatrix lestrange looking woman (laughs) that's what i picture okay kind (laughs) of wild hair really skinny kind of pale yeah looks kind of crazy but is pretty normal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. actually is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Disguised crazy. I mean, Bellatrix is actually crazy, but not the woman in the story. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably. Yeah. But it also kind of reminds me of like the yin yang. Like we all have a little kernel of like evil or like yeah. some kind of darkness in all of us. We all have a moral compass and it just depends on the person what they deem as right and what's wrong. And in this situation, it seemed like the narrator thought it was right to get rid of the I. It's really about like your id, ego, and superego, like which is more dominant. Like if you're normal per se, like both sides are pretty evenly balanced, but a lot of the times the ego takes place and it just decides it wants to run everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a lot of impulsive uh, traits. And I think that's just how we live. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of authors, well, a lot of people that suffer from anxiety or any mental disorder will be told to use creative outlets to channel that instead of going to unhealthy coping mechanisms or uh what's the word for that 
I forgot the word. I don't know what you're trying to say, <laughs> so I can't help you. <laughs> there was a word I had in my head, but it completely disappeared. But Poe used this way to talk about... You're talking about like coping mechanisms? Yes, unhealthy oh, okay. coping mechanisms. <laughs> uh, self-destructive behaviors. That's the oh, other okay. word I was thinking of. Um, Poe used his art to channel what he might have been thinking deep down inside his head. I'm going to hope not, but... What if, like, this dude was just really normal and he was like, oh, this would be sick. Yeah, I mean, he could be fooling at all of us, making him... Like, he's totally normal, but he just yeah. had a really crazy writing style. Yeah, he ju- he's just some average Joe that likes horror. <laughs> he's like, all right, let's make it a little interesting. <laughs> let's put a little spice on it, if yeah. you will. <laughs> I actually, They came out with a deck a while ago, a tarot deck for Edgar Allan Poe, and a lot of tarot decks come with little booklets to explain the the cards but this one I really liked because all of the cards go along with one of his short stories so it talks about the short story and how it relates to the card so for example uh the devil card represents overindulgence and it used the black cat story and it doesn't oh, I see so yeah. it's not like oh you're gonna go crazy one day like the man in the telltale heart stay yeah. away from the evil eye yeah <laughs> it talks uh it just talks about how the story could relate to it. Not that the cat is the devil, but... Yeah, which is also a very negative connotation of black cats. Yeah. Don't believe that. <laughs> black cats are the sweetest little babies. We have two you of have them. You have two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are the sweetest things. I love my babies. <laughs> yeah. Also, they don't get adopted a lot, so please go adopt a black cat. Yeah. I'll I pay mean, you. I'll Venmo you $50. Go to buy, <laughs> go buy one. <laughs> don't promise that. I won't. <laughs> I don't have $50. <laughs> Venmo me fifty dollars and I'll go buy a black cat. Okay, I catch okay. you. <laughs> my dad won't let it happen though. <laughs> He's looking at me right now as if I'm like talking out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I have for Edgar Allan Poe. Is there anything you want to add? No, I that about wraps him up. He lived a short life. He wasn't. Yeah, he was a sad man, but he had a beautiful art style that affected many people in many ways he had good karma because man did that flip on on that guy (laughs) anyway i guess the moral of the story is be a good person uh wear an evil eye don't go crazy and uh we'll see you next week